Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, we look at BC's seismic shift on how doctors are paid, if you get one. Plus, pay transparency. New York City becomes the first major city in North America, requiring employers by law to add salary ranges to job ads. Should BC follow the Big Apple's lead? And we look at online delivery services wanting to deliver legal marijuana for cannabis-loving British Columbians. Plus pizza for the munchies. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's focus on the story of the day. The B.C. government says it's overhauling its payment model in an attempt to retain family doctors and attract new ones. The new system they announced today moves away from the fee-for-service model and takes into account factors including time a doctor spends with a patient, the number of patients a doctor sees in a day, that sort of thing. Now, most family doctors in B.C. are currently uh, paid about $30 per patient visit, whether they're treating a common cold or a complex chronic health problem. Now, based on these targets that are announced today, doctors will earn approximately $385,000 a year, up from an average of $250,000. A new model will be available as of February of 2020 and it'll cost taxpayers just over $708 million uh, over three years. Now, family physicians can choose to continue with the current model or opt into the new one. Now, earlier today, uh, Health Minister Adrian Dix was asked how many new family doctors this could potentially add to the system or how many of the 1 million British Columbians who have no doctor would be able to access one. Now, take a listen. Uh, I, think, I think the answer is yes and no, Vaughn. We know from the changes we've made already that, uh, that these, these uh, new arrangements are going to increase the attractiveness of uh, family medicine and of family practice and of full-service family practice. We've seen that already with our new-to-practice contracts. We've seen that in the work we've done with our stabilization fund. So we've seen the impact of that. So secondly, um, I think that uh, what we see is that, uh, and you don't know, exactly how something's going to work, but this is only one part of a number of measures. So this is foundational. This improves and incentivizes family practice and improves things for patients as well by building out uh, team-based care for them. Now, the government uh, says it'll also create a provincial roster system that allows people without a family doctor uh, to be placed with a GP in their area uh, that is taking on new patients. The roster system, uh, which will be developed uh, in the middle of 2023, so it's not uh, happening today. Uh, once it is developed, it'll mean that people looking for a family doctor won't have to call around hoping to be taken on as a patient. Joining us now to talk about today's announcement is Dr. Romnik Desange. She is president of the Doctors of BC. Dr. Desange, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on the show. How transformational uh, is this new payment model for, for doctors and, and, and just operating here in British Columbia? I absolutely think this represents a seismic shift in the way we practice in BC. It's a model unique in Canada and it's bringing together the best of a range of payment models. Uh, who brought this to the table? Was it the provincial government or was it the doctors of BC? The doctors of BC initially brought this to the table and it's been a collaborative table since the summer when we started. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where did this idea come from? Was it just speaking to your members or or is this a model that perhaps uh, has been used or partially used in other jurisdictions and other countries? It really has been a bridging of range of different payment models and options that we've looked at. And really it was to listen to our members on the ground 
that really have led us to create this opportunity because of all of the burdens they face and all of the difficulties in maintaining a practice in family medicine these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, how will this lead to uh, more doctors? Uh, as you have said and many others have said, there's a million British Columbians without doctors. How will this lead to those million British Columbians hopefully uh, getting a doctor? So what we expect and hope that this will convince doctors to stay in practice that are already doing this type of longitudinal care So the patients that may have otherwise already lost their family doctor, they'll continue to receive the care. And when you speak of the 1 million patients without a family doctor, the hope is that this new payment model will incentivize physicians that have left for other types of practice or decided that they don't want to do longitudinal care just because it's been so cumbersome in the past. It gives them an opportunity and an ability to return to this type of practice. And the other thing is that it also entices new graduates from residency or some of the residents that may be choosing their residency at this time. It enables them to see hope and possibility of transformation and innovation in the way we practice. Hmm. It took us a long time to get this point where you have a million British Columbians without doctors. Um, What else do you think needs to be done besides this? Is it a question of more medical schools, uh, um, you know, more spaces for graduation? Uh, what other things need to happen? Because that number at the end of the day is significant. I just can't see one labor deal uh, changing uh, what has been a significant structural problem. You're absolutely right. You touch on many key aspects of healthcare, and we know that this problem is not going to solve anything overnight. And again, this is the first step towards transformational care. And what we need for that are to address the international medical graduates getting physicians that are already here, ability to practice, getting them into practice, allowing the physicians that don't do longitudinal primary care back into primary care, as well as creating more opportunities and seats for medical school residents and family doctors on the ground. But a lot of other things are team-based care strategies and really working within our primary care networks, which we're trying to establish throughout the divisions of family practice across the province and really embed them into the communities and create stakeholders where we understand that it takes a team to look after patients and really being able to set up a framework where we can thrive in medicine. There's a long way to go in medicine and healthcare reform, but this is an absolute incremental step, but definitely one that we've been waiting for. most family doctors, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, are generally paid about 30 to $40 per patient. And it doesn't matter if someone comes in with a needing a prescription for a, for a common cold or somebody who has a complex chronic health problem, they're paid between 30 to $40. Would the vast majority of doctors now move into this new system? And, and if doctors prefer to still stay in the old system, they can do so? I think that we are hearing from many physicians that have had some input or have told us what they want, that they want to shift out of the fee-for-service model. However, there are some physicians that are made it work for them and or are just close enough to retiring that they don't want a big change. We've tried to make this transition as seamless as we can and as applicable to many in practice that can adopt this way of doing things. And I think we have to understand that while the fee-for-service 
ex- model has existed for so long. We were not here to take that away from people. So the, for, for the people that it works for, they can continue. But this is a new way forward in the sense that there's a base rate and a foundation for the time that patients are seen and the providers that are taking that time with their patients. So it's not just transactional. And it's not like you said, just if they come in for one thing and this is what they're focusing on or versus the complexity. This is going to take in a myriad of things into consideration and also give some hope for the physicians getting remunerated or co- compensated for their indirect care. So checking their labs and doing their charting and a lot of the administrative tasks that are routinely done outside of work hours at home, late at night or on weekends, now we can tell physicians that you will be compensated for that time as well in, a, in addition to seeing your patients. Uh, and so uh, just so I, I have this clear, uh, doctors that prefer to stay in the, the present system can do so, as you've said. But if you're a new doctor starting out a year from now or two years from now, you would have access to the new system. The older doctors would remain in the older system if they choose. So they would be grandfathered in. Am, am I getting this right? Well, it's not choosing one or the other. It's just that we've made such a, this is actually very exciting and enticing. So those that are ready for change will probably change this new model because it is honoring all those things and valuing all the principles that many family doctors on the ground have been championing efforts for and advocating for. So that is here in this new payment model. And the new grads, they have an option of their new to practice contracts, which the government has rolled out, and they're open to those, but also open to this model, as are any physicians that have been practicing the existing model. It's very easy to be able to slide into this model. Mm -hmm. And and with this new model, uh, you're confident that it'll help doctors deal with the administrative costs and the challenges that are there before them as well, beyond just uh, everyday medicine, which that's why they got into that, that line of work? Yes, I absolutely believe that it's going to address the rising business costs. And it again, it recognizes the value physicians provide when delivering the longitudinal care. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Sanj, uh, I know this has been a, a long journey for doctors and for yourself as well. Thank you for your time today and look forward to chatting you w- with you on this issue in the weeks ahead. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you. Late last week, there was backlash over BC's decision to not support a 2030 Olympic bid, with host nations saying the move is a blow to reconciliation efforts. The four First Nations, the Lilwat, Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh, that drove the unique bid, unique bid, said they were extraordinarily they were extraordinarily disappointed, and said they were cut out of out of any dialogue about the idea when it comes to uh, talking with the government. Now, critics, however, remind British Columbians there are over 200. First Nations communities in our province and that the vast majority of them are not involved with that specific bid. They also say that those nations are also not as affluent as the lower mainland nations like Musqueam, Squamish and tsleil and that spending uh, billions of dollars that only benefit four nations is not the direction to go when it comes to reconciliation. Joining me now to discuss last week's decision is Dallas Smith, president of the Nanwakalis Coast Council, which advises six First Nations communities on Vancouver Island. Mr. Smith lives in Duncan. Dallas, thank you for joining us today. You bet, thank you. Your thoughts on uh, the announcement last week by uh, the BC government that it uh, will not be moving forward in regards to funding uh, uh, this 2030 Winter Olympics. What did you think of it? It was a little bit double-edged for me. I, I always 
love the opportunity for First Nations communities to advance just where first, you know, where we are in the in the big picture of things. And I think the Olympics is a wonderful opportunity, as was done in 2010. But I definitely have some concerns around reconciliation and the success of it being tied to um, something that's controlled by the International Olympic Committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those specifically, it's the you just don't think that the, we should be involved with the IOC and, and the issue of reconciliation should be tied with the Olympic movement? Well, no, I, I, I don't think so. I think reconciliation has to be about the partners who, who are involved in it, and that's the federal, provincial government and First Nations communities. And um, I'd hate to see a beautiful bid package get put together and, you know, $1.3 billion worth of reconciliation sort of earmarked funds to be turned down. Um, and then you wonder where does that leave the other 202 First Nations in British Columbia who are working towards reconciliation and the same values that, that the four host nations are, are working towards. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think there are better ways in regards to spending those dollars, uh, as you say, with the 200 plus other First Nations? This particular bid um, involved the Musqueam, uh, the Lilwat, the Tsleil-Waututh, uh, and the Musqueam. Uh, the four uh, bid nations here. Uh, do you think there are better ways to, to be spending that dollar, those dollars in your mind in regards to reconciliation? Oh, I think so. If it's going to be earmarked as reconciliation and be kind of a litmus test for reconciliation, there has to be more deliverables that spread out to the rest of First Nations communities. Um, with that said, you know, I, I've worked very closely with great leaders from the Squamish and Musqueam for years and, you know, really enjoyed how they put our people out in the forefront during the 2010 Olympics. But like I said, tying it to reconciliation is a bit of a challenge for me because I know firsthand how much work other communities are putting into it and how reconciliation really needs to be about community development as opposed to kind of an urban-centric development. Mm -hmm. But with that said, I wish MST would take back Stanley Park so everybody (laughs) else would quit fighting over it and they could decide how that goes. (laughs) (laughs) What are the needs in... um non for non-urban first nations i mean we spend so much time talking about first nations and uh and Van, metro vancouver uh, but you step away from this little corner of british columbia you've got a huge landmass, 200 other uh, first nations communities 200 plus uh, what are some of the challenges before them well i think just trying to bring up the quality of life in first nations communities you know access to credit really hides the true condition in most First Nations communities. And so anything we can grow, anything we can do to grow sustainable economic development needs to be looked at. And it was kind of, kind of gave me a chuckle when I saw that the um, Pacific Caucus of the federal liberals weighed in on that and kind of kicked the province around. And, um, you know, having any partisan party kind of pick and choose what is reconciliation from an outside view like that is just scary and it's not really in the right direction of, of where we need to be going. Mm-hmm. What does recon- reconciliation mean for you in your community um, when you're based on Vancouver Island, far, far away from Metro Vancouver? What would that mean for you and, and, and um, your fellow members of your First Nations community? What does it look like, First Na- uh, Reconciliation? Well, there's a whole lot of work going down on the cultural and social side of it, which I'm happy to see is evolving. Obviously, it still has a real long way to go because of some of the horror stories we keep hearing, backed up by Kenwood's Indian Residential School and all those sorts of things. So there's a lot of healing that needs to be done. But for a generic term that would be understandable is having First Nations communities living at or equal to um, 
you know, the human well-being level for, for the rest that Canadians enjoy. Um, do you think most First Nations outside of uh, the urban area of Metro Vancouver support the decision made by the provincial government in not moving forward with this bid? Oh, I think you'll hear support from other communities for where Musqueam, Squamish, Salatouf, and Lillooet want to go um, with regards to future participation in bids. But I think um, you know most of the First Nations outside of the Lower Mainland area understand the challenges in front of them and probably agree that you know spending 1.3 million dollars earmarked for sort of reconciliation, earmarking it as reconciliation, probably isn't a great, 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 great set of policy to to go forward with. Mm-hmm. Um, ten years from now, uh, in reconciliation is a tough one to define. Ten years from now, where do you hope this province is at when it comes to the broader conversation about working together and reconciliation? Where do you, where do you want to see this province? I think continued work through self-determination. I think, you know, whatever forms reconciliation negotiations are taking it taking place in, whether it be the treaty process or through actual reconciliation agreements, that First Nations community start to declare what that is and what it means to them. For too long, I think that's one of the challenges of the reconciliation is everybody's just sort of swinging in the air at it and saying, if it's colonialism, you know, we need reconciliation to beat it. And I think there needs to be a lot more focus on what's working and where are those results being achieved so how we can, you know, invest in what's working and learn to you know, no one wants to see a cookie cutter, cookie cutter approach, but it's only plagiarism in college. So if we can take things that are working in some parts of the province and maybe apply them in other parts um, with the comfort level of, of said community, I think we can get a little bit farther. Mm-hmm. Well, Dallas, uh, absolute pleasure talking with you. Look forward to having you on the show again. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Jazz. Anytime. As of two weeks ago, Toronto cannabis shoppers are able to request cannabis deliveries through Uber Eats. Now, the food delivery platform owned by U.S. tech giant Uber Technologies announced the partnership with online marijuana marketplace Leafly that will see it process pot orders for retailers in um, Ontario, including Hidden Leaf Cannabis, Minerva Cannabis, and, and Shiva's Rose. The partnership will mark the first time Uber has facilitated the delivery of marijuana anywhere in the world. And of course, the obvious question is, when will it come to British Columbia? Well, joining me now is the Canadian General Manager of Uber Eats, Lola Kassam. Lola, thank you for joining us today. Great to be with you. Uh, you uh, launched as a company this service uh, in uh, Toronto on the 17th. So it's been uh, running now for about a couple of weeks. How have things been running in regards to deliveries for the first couple of weeks? Um, they've been running really, uh, really well. Um, as you know, uh, we have launched this first-of-its-kind partnership uh, between Uber Eats uh, and Leafly, which is essentially allowing uh, folks in Toronto who are above the age of 19 um, to, for the first time, really anywhere in the world on a major delivery platform like ours, actually use the Uber Eats app to place orders for safe, uh, legal cannabis. Hmm. Uh, now, for a customer, if, if I was ordering, uh, what are the practical ways to order? Is it just a case of just going onto the app and it's it's right there in front of you? Great question. Um, So, you know, in many ways, it it is like placing an order from uh, your favorite restaurant, but there's a couple of of, uh, nuances to be aware of because this is a highly regulated space. Um, So, number one, you know, you go into your Uber Eats app, 
Um, and you can either go um, directly to the cannabis uh, category, or you can search for one of the three merchants who's involved with us right now uh, in Toronto. Um, so that's, you know, fairly similar to your standard experience. But in addition to that, um, as a, a user, you'll be prompted to first verify that you're above the age of 19. Once you've done that, you can go to the, uh, you know, essentially the, the, the online or digital store, uh, browse through the menu, uh, select your products. Um, before you check out, you'll be prompted again to confirm you're above the age of 19, that you're not intoxicated, um, and then essentially your delivery uh, will be sent uh, to uh, the licensed cannabis retailer. You'll be given an, an estimated uh, time uh, of, of arrival. Mm. Uh, now, in regards to delivery, I mean, I, I leave my office um, after my show uh, walking to to my vehicle, and I always see uh, Uber Eats drivers uh whizzing past and, and making those deliveries in downtown Vancouver, um, would the same individuals, uh, these employees, these, these people who work for Uber Eats, be making the delivery or because of the product itself that it's, it's handled differently? That's a very, very important question. Um, so it's important to note here that the deliveries actually won't be carried out by our regular network of you know, third-party uh, Uber Eats uh, uh, delivery people. Um, with the regulations in Ontario, deliveries can only be carried out by the staff of, you know, each individual, um, you know, licensed cannabis uh, retailer. Um, anyone who's a staff member um, of those retailers has to have um, the CanSell certification, which is essentially the province of Ontario's um, education course for the retail cannabis um, sector. So anyone making these deliveries is actually a CanSell certified um, staff member of a licensed cannabis retailer. Mm. Uh, the idea itself uh, for uh, a home delivery, uh, how much of a role did COVID play in, in sort of allowing this to at least uh, uh, to come to fruition uh, and then now get to the point where, where it's a regular service for Uber Eats? Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, as many folks will know, um, in Canada, um, you know, um, cannabis was, you know, first decriminalized uh, about four years ago. Um, but it was only during uh, the pandemic um, that, um, you know, provincial governments, Ontario in particular, um, looked to make it, um, you know, more easy for folks to have both delivery and also order online for pickup of cannabis products. So that was first introduced uh, last year uh, in Ontario, but this year in March, um, you know, I think in, in response to, um, you know, demands from consumers and also the sector, those rules were actually made permanent. You know, so this is something that started um, during the pandemic, um, but then now the rules and the regulatory framework that enables us uh, to do uh, delivery with cancel certified staff, that's now been made, uh, made permanent. But certainly uh, I do believe uh, the pandemic and the desire for people to have safe options, not just to pick up, but also to deliver, um, you know, our, our known place. Mm -hmm. uh, and the question I think uh, <laughs> my listeners want me to ask more than any other question is, when can we see something similar here in British Columbia? <laughs> not, not surprised uh, <laughs> that, you're, that you're asking. Um, but I think what's important to remember is that this is the first time cannabis delivery uh, is available on a major delivery platform in the world. Um, and this is, of course, a, you know, a very highly regulated space. So we want to make sure that we get it right. Um, so, you know, as we learn from the partnership, um, see how things are going with the retailers that we're working with, see how things are going with our consumers. 
Um, we will look to expand, but likely first uh, within Toronto and within Ontario uh, as a next step. Um, you know, as I mentioned, you know, we're working um, very closely um, to make sure that we're following all the rules in Ontario. Um, and it's important to know that every province uh, in Canada has um, somewhat um, different or nuanced regulatory frameworks. So to expand somewhere like BC, we need to make sure that we are following uh, the relevant rules and regulations. So that's something that we are looking at uh, very closely. Um, so no timelines to share with you right now regarding BC. Um, but as soon as we do have something to, to share, uh, it'll be because we're ready to go from that compliance perspective and also a safety perspective too, which is, I think, important to, uh, to all of us. Well, based on absolutely no market research, I think you're going to do very well here once you do decide to expand. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, appreciate being here with you. While families uh, prepare to go trick-or-treating tonight, halfway around the world, it was a very difficult weekend. Hundreds of people were hurt and killed during a tragic Halloween uh, crowd crush in the South Korean capital of Seoul. Our show contributor, John Jang, has more. It's the deadliest disaster in South Korea in nearly 10 years. On October 29th, approximately 100,000 people attended a Halloween event in Seoul's famous Itaewon district. Itaewon is an extremely popular area for both locals and foreigners because of the many nightclubs and bars that are located in that area. In fact, it has a reputation as the international district of Seoul because of how popular it has become. The entrances to many of these businesses are actually located in the back streets, essentially alleyways where foot traffic is both heavy and slow. For context, these alleyways are just 14 feet wide, not designed to accommodate the tens of thousands of people like we had seen on Saturday night. But it was Korea's first Halloween in three years without any COVID-19 restrictions. And for many young people, it was the chance to celebrate three years worth of bottled up festive energy. Tragically, it was many young people that lost their lives in the crowd crush that resulted on Saturday night. Four victims were teenagers, and at least 95 victims were in their 20s. Over 150 people were also hurt, some seriously, and the following day, Seoul police filed over 4,000 missing person reports. A crowd crush can come out of nowhere and happen very quickly, as witnessed last summer during the infamous Astroworld Travis Scott concert, where 10 people died and dozens more needed medical assistance. But a large crowd doesn't necessarily have to mean 100,000 people. A crowd crush can happen with significantly smaller numbers in the right tragic context. So with that in mind, here are just a few tips that could save your life. I'm Dr. J. Max Slaughter, and these are the four things you can do to survive a crowd crush. One, arms up. When a crowd of tens of thousands of people are compressing against your chest, your chest wall can't expand and collapse properly. And so all of a sudden, you can't exhale carbon dioxide you can't inhale oxygen your carbon dioxide levels start to go through the roof you get lightheaded you get euphoric you may pass out it's at that time that your oxygen levels then tank and you start to do permanent damage to your brain and potentially die two go with the flow when you're in a huge amount of people like this the physics turn into more of liquid dynamics than individual human beings. So movements on the outer periphery of the mass of people will transmit through the entire crowd like water. You can see these videos from helicopters and kind of the bird's eye view and the whole crowd is swaying and moving just like water. What you need to do is go with the flow. You don't have enough strength in your body to push against the force of tens of thousands of people as it's transmitted through the crowd. So save your energy, you're gonna need it. 
Three, stay standing. Imagine you're in a bathtub and all of a sudden you pull the drain. What happens? All the water collapses into that drain. When one person falls and the force of the crowd continues to push in towards that hole, all of those people start falling on top of that one individual and the person at the bottom is not gonna have an easy time breathing. Four, stay away from hard surfaces and barriers. If you imagine that force being transmitted throughout the entire crowd, it gets to you and then you go to transfer that force directly into a wall, that wall is going to push back at you with an equal and opposite reactive force, right? All of that force from the crowd is going to come back into your chest wall. It's gonna break ribs, you could break your spine, you could do damage to your internal organs of the abdomen. Stay away from these hard surfaces. Thank you uh, to our good uh, friend, John Chang, for that report. He joins us now. John, thanks uh, uh, for that report. Uh, you've been in Seoul before, haven't you? Yeah, I've walked the very streets where so many people uh, either got hurt, Jazz, over the weekend or uh, very tragically died. It's, uh, it's, it's really bizarre to know that I was there just a few short years ago. Mm-hmm. I, I was just thinking as I was listening to your report, I um, recall when I lived in India, I was uh, attending an arts fair. Uh, and my wife and I were there and we took our, our son and he must have been maybe six, seven months. So we had him in a stroller and we were there maybe for, I, I would say, 10 minutes. And there's the crowd was so big. It was a very popular mm-hmm. fair. It was wonderful. I just uh, told my wife, I said, we've got to get out of here. This is just too big, too many people. I don't feel comfortable. And she was the same way. And we ended up, <laughs> after paying to get in, leaving just because there was uh, there were too many people there. No, of course, nothing happened. Uh, but they were averaging 100,000, 200,000 people every day coming through wow. there. And yeah. it's the same sort of thing. And I, and I think that those are very good tips that uh, that were provided there. But you, you, you hear these stories from far away sometimes in other parts of the world, and you don't you don't even think about them impacting you. But it, it really does come down to, you know, whoever is organizing these things, you have to be very well organized with proper exit routes and enough authorities and police there to help at yeah. the end of the day, right? Yeah, police uh, that night were reported saying that they had a hard time controlling the crowd before the crush began to happen. Uh, that alone should have been red flags, and I'm sure in hindsight they wish they could have done more to disperse some of the people from uh, going down those small alleyways. But uh, to your point, Jazz, like we heard about the Astro World concert in the United States last year. Now there's this crowd crush in Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, but think, you know, just a few years ago before COVID, we had the New Year's Eve Vancouver celebrations right here in downtown Vancouver, right by Canada Place. Mm-hmm. I remember one time we. Were there it was like eighty thousand people had come down from all across the lower mainland to check out the free concerts the fireworks everything like that eighty thousand people but of course there was no crowd crush because it was organized better there was a lot of open space most of it was outdoors anyways so you weren't really confined to tight quarters where you were pushing up against people and if you ever do find yourself in a situation like that i think honestly the best thing to do is to just get out yeah. uh I, I even kind of cringe now thinking about when I used to go to concerts and trying to elbow my way to the front row. Like, I, I don't think I could ever do something like that now. No, absolutely not. You think of some of the, even the Vasaki Day Parade in uh, in Surrey, they're averaging 300,000, 400,000 people. And it's much more of a confined space, even though you can mm-hmm. move around. But when you compare that to, let's say, what happened in Seoul, I mean, I was just reading about it uh, this morning. They had only 137 officers 
a police officer to manage that crowd of 100,000 people. Yet there was some political protests in another part of the city. They assigned 7,000 police officers. Mm-hmm. So it also shows you that I don't think they expected it to be A, that big, or certainly this to occur or even potentially occur, uh, and the resources went uh, another place. So definitely, um, once again, another reminder that you do have to take these things very seriously uh, and have lots and lots of authority uh, authorities in regards to uh, police and ambulance there as well. John, thank you so much. You got it. Thanks, Jess. Well, after months of waiting, landmark legislation affecting New York City's roughly 4 million private sector workers is finally going into effect. Starting tomorrow, most employers in New York City will be required to list the salary range on all posted job ads, promotions, and transfer opportunities. Experts say legislation that promotes salary trans- uh, transparency from the employer's side is key to closing racial and gender wage gaps. And then given the size and scale of employers in New York City, coupled with a newfound adoption of remote work, it's likely the new law's uh, impact will reach far beyond the city, perhaps even here in Canada. Joining me now to talk about um, this law in New York City and the broader conversation around um, transparency around salaries is Jeff Mason. He's an employment and human rights lawyer for Miller Thompson. Jeff, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So let's talk about the specific uh, legislation in New York. Uh, how um, wide-reaching is it in your mind? Uh, it, it, it's fairly wide-reaching. It uh, it applies to any business uh, with over four employees. So uh, to give you a comparison, there, there was similar legislation that came out in Ontario in 2018. I think that applied to businesses with, uh, with 100 or more employees. So this is going to affect um, a, a lot of businesses in New York City. Why do you think we need something like this? Uh, well... <laughs> Pay disparity, uh, whether on the basis of gender or race, um, it, it's been a long-standing issue. Uh, there's been steps that have taken to close the gap in, in recent years, but um, there, there's still a considerable difference. Um, in the states, I think as of 2018, it was at a, almost 20%. I was, I think it was about 18%. Uh, pay difference between men and women. Canada right now, it's at about 10% uh, nationally. I think in BC, we're up to about 19% as well. So it's been a, a persistent problem for years. I think this type of legislation does does something to help close that gap. Um, I don't think it's a, a magic bullet, but it, it certainly is a step in the right direction. You, you were mentioning Ontario introducing something similar, and so that's still in the books now? Yeah, my understanding is that that legislation has been passed, but it, it's yet to be enacted yet. But there's there's similar legislation throughout the country. I, I think BC is actually only one of four provinces that doesn't have uh, pay transparency legislation in place. Uh, and is this is going to be popular with employees, but not so much with employers? How come? Well, that's that's a good question. I think it's a bit of an open question. It's going to be popular for employees obviously uh insofar as it does it does something to help close that gap um for employers uh you know if, if it means you're going to have to pay everyone equally fair wages um and that means that you're going to have to increase your wages for for some workers um some employers are going to push back on that but i, I think there's also a fairly strong business case for this type of transparency um 
there was a recent study out uh, that said I think 50% of employees would would leave their current jobs for another employer if it meant that they were transparent with their wages. Uh, so you see a lot of employees who are actually really pushing quite hardly for this. And, and you're seeing more employers who are voluntarily being more transparent with their wages. I think that this is a step um, aside from the, uh, you know, just the, the pay equity side of things. Um, there is a business case for being more transparent about your wages uh, just for the purposes of attracting and retaining talent. Uh, do you think this is just cultural that we've always been told one should never talk about how much money they make and, and not just on the employer side, but the employee side? And this has been part of the sort of the broader uh, conversation we've never really had, which is it's OK to talk about one's salary, especially when, when one talks about fairness. Absolutely. I mean, I think that it's um, it's part and parcel with a lot of other uh, traditional workplace norms that are being questioned right now. But, it, you know, no doubt, I think a lot of employees uh, have felt uncomfortable even asking the question when they're going through uh, the application process. And, you know, a lot of employers have kind of pushed back on that, um, you know, taking offense to the question being asked. I think even just having this discussion makes it easier for employees to put that pressure on employers. Um, and this is, I, you know, I, I think part of the, the larger trend we're seeing in the labor market, providing more employees with leverage, um, you know, that goes back to the issue of retaining talent as more employees have more leverage about the types of work conditions that they're willing to, to accept. Um, employers are realizing they're, they kind of have to uh, adjust their norms and, and their own expectations of what they, they expect applicants employ, and employees are going to act like. Hmm. Uh, your sense of things. I mean, you, you, your backdrop is uh, is legal. Uh, or has there been any better time than now than present for workers, especially in the private sector, in regards to um, any sort of leverage and salaries, in regards to uh, workplace conditions? Has there been more sort of a more, much better time than now in regards to a post COVID environment, a lack of labor? One would assume this is probably the best it's been for for employees in a long time certainly as long as i've uh, i've been alive um i haven't been aware of a, a better time for this i mean all of the the stars are kind of aligning um you know I, th- I think it remains to be seen um where things will go in the future um but yeah i, I mean I, I think this is as good, a good a time as any for um for workers to be pushing for this i mean I think it's also important to point out that the the wage transparency legislation specifically um, should be taken with a, a grain of salt in terms of how much it can do to to help close the pay gap. Um, you know, the there's a lot of different factors that go into income disparity, whether on the basis of, of race or gender or other protected characteristics. You know, this type of legislation isn't going to do much to affect uh, gender differences in terms of certain high-income roles, mm-hmm. um, discrepancies in terms of leaves, maternity leaves, discrepancies in terms of education, um, or, or other components of, of compensation packages like bonuses and stock options, those sorts of things. So th- there's going to be a lot of other factors that uh, need to be taken into consideration to really sort of address um, the income disparity issue broadly, but the, the the wage transparency legislation is at least a step in the right direction. I'm not saying that Americans aren't um, 
progressive. Uh, they are in many cases, many states like New York and California lead uh, not only just on labor issues, but uh, when it comes to the environment. I'm just surprised that we haven't been having this conversation here in Canada. Why do you think we've been so slow? I mean, you did mention Ontario having legislation, but uh, it hasn't been enacted. BC doesn't seem to have anything of such, such, uh, such as what we have in New York. Why have we been so slow uh, on this side of the border? Well, it's a good question. I mean, I think, first of all, you're absolutely right. We have been kind of uh, slow off the gate in terms of uh, addressing this. I think that, you know, whatever the explanation is for that, there is some benefit to not being the first jurisdiction to to try to find a solution. At least you can look at other jurisdictions who are taking different approaches and, and see what works and what doesn't. Um, the only explanation I can think of uh is is that a lot of this is being driven by market norms. Hmm. Um, I, I don't think that a lot of businesses in the states um, and, and a lot of uh, governments in the states have sort of suddenly had this um, uh, this moral compulsion to to address the issue. I think that's part of it, and certainly more on the uh, the legislative front. But I think the the larger impetus for this. Um, is, is just the, the economic case that a lot of businesses are realizing that they they need to uh, to implement these sorts of transparency policies in order to attract the talent that they might have had a much easier time attracting in the past. So this legislation is probably more palatable than it's ever been for employers, which gives legislators a, a much easier route to to enacting it. And it's uh, it's why, as I said earlier, you're seeing a lot more businesses do this voluntarily. So I think, you know, it's probably being driven uh, at least equally by the, the economic factors. Jeff, thank you for your time today, my friend. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.